On this week in sales, we're going to be taking a look at how 75% of revenue leaders feel, quote, somewhat effective at training their salespeople. That is abysmal. We'll come on to that in a second. What, what data storytelling is and how it can help you win more business and how Hyundai has automated the nagging car salesman and much, much more. My name is Will Barron, founder of Salesman.org, and I'm one half of this week in sales. The other half, Victor Antonio, joins me by the power of the inside. Victor, sales legend, Victor Antonio, how's it going, sir? Well, glad to be back again another uh, week. Uh, all is good on my side. How about your side with the new dog? Everything is going well. Um, we were just touching off, off camera about the dog. We've gone back to basics on a few things, but he is now sitting, he's going down, he's almost got rollover. What else has he got? He's almost got spin. Um, he's doing well. He's very polite, well-mannered. He's a golden retriever after all. So polite, well-mannered, but chewing everything he possibly can. We've had to clear out the room he's in. So it's now just toys. So he can't abuse anything and, and everyone's happy. <laughs> By the way, don't you wish you could train salespeople that way? <laughs> Sit, roll over. <laughs> well, I, 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 we, again, we touched on this before we click record. I feel like after doing all this dog training, I don't think humans are all that much different. I think that we, we have this layer of trainability. And then I feel like whether it's our consciousness, whatever it is, we have another layer on top that just disrupts it all. I feel like if we could interact with uh, each other as kind of dogs and humans interact, we could probably get a lot more done if if we just listen to each other a little bit more. Maybe that's the answer. I love it. I love it, man. All right, man. Let's jump into it, Well, Let's jump into it. Well, this is the uh, the first thing we're going to talk about is a uh, post on mindtickle.com. It is the State of Remote Readiness Report. Uh, the title that I've, I've outlined here in the doc is 75% of revenue leaders feel, quote, somewhat effective at training their salespeople, while 17% say they're not effective at all. Victor, this is a, this is a problem if... 17% of sales leaders don't feel like they can train the team. What? It's, it's, what's going on here? Uh, bad leadership. I mean, if you can't, <laughs> if you, if you feel you can't train your team, that's, that's a shocking number. That number should be like zero, maybe 1% as outliers. But if you can't train your team, I mean, who's really the problem here, Will? That is a that is a very good point. Um, that well, we, we probably don't need to go through the rest of this now. We probably just sum that up. Uh, but we'll, I'll just give you a few more numbers. The top four problems for revenue leaders that they're trying to solve include onboarding new salespeople, addressing a salesperson's need for training, or addressing a skill deficiency, bringing underperforming salespeople to an acceptable performance level, and supporting a change in sales messaging. And I thought that one was really interesting. 37% of sales leaders don't feel effective in supporting a change in sales messaging. It's this because sales messaging has just got so complicated. And now we can't just tell people to start pitching this line of, of, of copy. Now we've got to change it in our sales enablement software. We've got to change it on the website. Marketing's now involved in everything that we do, so we've got to change it there as well. Perhaps sales leaders are feeling slightly out of the depth with some of this. Does that shock you or surprise you, Victor, a little bit in that 37% of sales leaders have difficulty, have difficulty supporting a change in sales messaging? I, it doesn't surprise me. I think the number sounds about right. And we've had this problem in the past, even before technology and everything you mentioned above. And that is usually the, the disconnect between marketing sees in terms of what they've done in research and what the frontline salespeople see in terms of messaging. And sometimes they just, you know, collide, you know, they don't agree. So salespeople go, screw that. I'm doing my own messaging, you know. And again, I, th I, I think leadership sits atop. I, I would love your opinion on this. Sometimes leaders sit on top and they sit, they go into, into in a room with marketing and said, all right, all right, let's build up some nice voice of the customer messages. Let's get this down, right? And then they deliver it to salespeople without their involvement. And salespeople go, no, no, I don't think I want to tell my customer this. I don't think that's going to work. You know, and what do you think of that thought? I, I agree. So I'm doing, I won't. Right, so I'm doing two large enterprise deals right now. Uh, you know about one of them. There's another one we'll touch on after we click record. Um, so, I'll, so there's two companies because they listen to this show. So I don't want them to know who I'm talking about here. Two large enterprise talk. companies, right? And <laughs> one of them is having real issues, not issues. It's just being very slow. Um, I signed off with a VP of sales on this, this large contract that we're doing. We're going to do a load of training for them and got on a call. The money's there. We're rocking and rolling. We're ready to go. Now, six, seven weeks later, they've accepted the invoice. That's all being processed. Um, but they wanted to write up their own contracts of what's going on. And 
it's all stuck with legal and it's all over the place. And I, I messaged the VP of sales and he's, it, you know, the team's working on it. It's coming, relax, chill out. And then by the time I get to the individuals in the legal team, um, I don't think they don't call it a legal team, whatever they call it, uh, but that's essentially what it is. They're saying, well, there's this issue. There's this issue. We need to have a look at this. Um, you should probably have a solicitor from your side. The deal's getting to that kind of size that you should probably look at this seriously yourself rather than just sign it. And so I think that's uh, kind of firsthand experience of what you're describing there of the VP who actually has the budget says, or the leader says, we're rocking and rolling, let's do this. But then it, it was the saying, shit falls down. And then it lands yeah. on everyone else underneath who has to actually pick up the pieces and, and implement some of this. So that might be some of the issue here in that the VP of sales, the sales leadership, they say, we want to change the sales messaging to this. We're working with the VP of marketing who says, uh, this is effective. But then as it trickles down for all these, especially in the enterprise, these layers of bureaucracy, it all kind of Pick gets it. scattered and just becomes a mess. So maybe they're saying... Yeah. Rather than the saying they can't control the team and the messaging, they're saying they can't control the machine itself to get that messaging into production. That makes sense. I'll leave it at that. I, that's a good summary right there. Um, I will, we'll cover one just final bit of uh, this mind tickle state of remote readiness report. Because uh, I thought this was interesting. The report revealed that 50% of revenue leaders haven't documented what it takes to become a successful remote sales rep. So assume what they're saying here is they've got relative documentation of what it, what, what it takes to become a good sales rep pre-global pandemic. Uh, mm-hmm. Now that everyone's remote, they've not managed to document what becomes uh, what, what is successful uh, in a remote environment. And that would, to me, would seem like an absolute priority now that we, we're now at the point where onboarding is probably happening and we're just hiring remote people. So if we don't document what we need, uh, what leads to success now, how can you hire the right person? How can you onboard them? How can you accelerate them? So that was interesting to me that 50% of sales uh, revenue leaders haven't documented what it takes to be successful in this uh, in this new world that we're living in. I, I think that number is too high. You know, uh, revealed that, or 50% revealed, I think it's more, right? It, it's, it, it should be higher. I've been talking to a lot of companies and I asked them about their remote selling process, right? And blank look. Well, I mean, we have something, Victor. We have something. I mean, what, what is that something? So I usually say, why don't we do this? Uh, so my training doesn't conflict with what messaging you're giving your salespeople. Why don't you send me what you have for your remote selling process, right? Well, and they're like, now remember, they've built this up like, well, yeah, we have something. We have something. And then they wind up sending me this like one page of bullet points. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, and they're like, that's our that's our remote selling playbook. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, I don't say that to them, but I'm like, are you kidding me? So I think that number is understated. There's probably more because it's such – the dynamics are so new. I think in, even towards the end of 2020, we were somewhat in denial that things, were gonna, that things weren't going to go back. You know, We were like saying, no, they will go back to normal. And I think now we're finally settling in, Will, like really settling into, okay, we have to change. So I think uh, they need to get on it, build their process out on the remote selling side. For sure, for sure. Okay, well, let's move on to the next topic here. This is an article from Forbes. Uh, we'll see where we go with this one, Victor. Um, oh, well, by the way, we should warn the audience. We're about to enter dangerous waters, yep. very choppy, dangerous This is where waters. all my contracts, sponsorships, and everything could potentially <laughs> fall apart. And this is so where it goes bad. This, this is, is the part of the movie where you. By the way, it's like the part of the movie where you don't. It's everything's really good. Everything's really good at the movie. You go, oh, it's about to go bad. You know, because everything's just too good. Okay, it's about to go bad. I think. Go ahead, Will. So this isn't. And to tee this up, some of this is common sense that we'll probably touch on now. But uh, this is an article from Forbes entitled "It's Time to Crack the B two B Sales Gender Diversity." code. Now, just that title in its its own right is a mouthful, uh, but I'm quoting from the article here. Although women make up more than half of the global workforce, they represent fewer than one third of all B2B sales and one quarter of all B2B tech sales roles. And when it comes to the most coveted jobs, again, I don't know how they've defined this. This is subjective. Uh, women only hold 12% of those positions. Now, just as a, as a, as a starting point here, do those numbers surprise you or that's kind of what I would expect, to be fair? You know, the first part where they say they, they represent fewer than one-third of B2B sales, and I, and I think it tied it into college. And I, and I think there's a mismatch there because it depends on what degree you get, if it's a technical or non-technical degree. So, you know, we could kind of slice and dice that one. Uh, and when it comes to competent sales, yeah, women hold 12% of those positions. And the number seems a bit low to me. 
I think it should be higher. I thought it would be in, in the 30, 40 range. So that number does surprise me that's that low. Sure. Okay. And, and again, coveted sales roles. Uh, and, and I'll touch on why some of this might be, we need to double take on it in a second. Um, but coveted is obviously subjective. Um, when it didn't say sales roles of uh, estimated earnings of over 500 grand or something like that, which would be a more objective way of measuring this. Um, so I'll carry on quoting. While gender diversity in B2B sales is severely lacking, Okay. Uh, company profits are close to 50% higher when women are well represented at executive levels. So again, I'll dissect that slightly in that we're not talking about women at executive levels here. We're talking about women in sales. So that's that mm -hmm. point is almost irrelevant. And you can see where we're going with this audience of uh, mm -hmm. there's, there's a few points in this post that we need to clarify. Um, so Karen quoting, and when women lead sales teams, they deliver higher win and quota retainment rates than their male counterparts. If that is true, uh, if there's data on that, then that's interesting. I did not realize that. Uh, maybe female sales leaders uh, make uh, more empathetic, better sales leaders. Is, is that fair to, to kind of ponder on? You know, uh, I, and I didn't put this in the show notes, but I want to highlight an article and we'll put it in the show notes. Because uh, I, I did a Google search right before we got out and I found an article over at Harvard Business Review that said, why women are the future of B2B sales. You know, and the thing is, I, I kind of agree. It, it, this is, I'm, I'm taking the lady side. I, I'm in touch with my feminine side, I guess, today. I'm going to be kind because I've noticed several things is that we're living in a world now, and again, the guys are really good. By the way, guys, just go to thisweekinsales.com and tell us why you would agree or disagree with me. And so what happens is we're moving into a point in selling Will, what customers are finding you. What customers are looking for today, I think, is not for you to give them more information. They're not looking for you to take them out to the golf range. They're looking for you to really listen to them, empathize with them, and, and basically give them the information they want. They want sincere conversations. And women just seem to be better at empathizing, I think. And that's a natural tendency for them. You know, I hate to admit that, but, you know, they're just better at doing that. And if you disagree, you know, again, thisweekinsales.com, let me know what you think. But the, the person that really drove this point home for me, and I'll give you an example, uh, we copied your show, Shark Tank. Remember, we have Shark Tank here. And it, what was it over there? It was something um, else over there. Uh, the, uh, the, oh, Gumpy Dragon's Tank? Den. Dragon's Den. Oh, so, so uh, it, it was a tougher name. It was a tougher name. I was messing with you. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to offend you, Will, by calling it Guppy Tank, but you didn't take the bait. Anyway. Oh, that was a good so, point uh, at the end, though. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, Kevin O'Leary uh, was being interviewed, and it's on YouTube somewhere. I, I guess if I'll find out, I'll, I'll give us the link so we can put in the show notes. And he said something interesting, because look at the phrase. Read the phrase here. When women lead sales teams, they, they deliver higher win and quota attainment rates than their male counterparts. And Kevin O'Leary tells a story about all these businesses he's invested in, much like the show uh, over there. And he highlighted something. He said, I would rather hire women as executives than men. And, and he's in back now, before you jump at me, let me tell you why. And to summarize it very quickly, he said, the men, I, I don't know if it's bravado or whatever it is, they give you these unrealistic numbers and they, they just, you know, you got to hit these numbers, you know, you know, a la, a la Greg Cardone, right? Sure. A la Gary Vaynerchuk, a la whoever is aggressive, you know, Wolf of Wall Street, get the numbers, just close the deal. Where the women would set reasonable goals and would hit their number more consistently. And then here was the final point he threw in. I just thought this was really interesting. He said, because of the way they manage their sales force, the men, executives, leaders, had a higher turnover rate than the women. And so not only do women drive a more consistent quota attainment rate, he said, but they're also reducing the cost of churn, you know, by keeping employees improving retention. Those are my two cents. I love the way you used somebody else to uh, share that point so that it can't come back and bite yourself in the ass. Um, That's correct. <laughs> that, that is the sign of a pro right there. And I agree what you're saying. And look, 
some of this is difficult to put across when it's two dudes talking about it, clearly. Maybe there's the opportunity to have a, a female sales leader on the show. Um, I, I'm interviewing uh, the new female sales leader or the female leader over at uh, Challenger Sales soon as well. So perhaps I can touch on some of this with her. But there is tons of data. There's tons of science that show on a whole, and it's you know it's a sliding scale, of course. There can be more um, more empathetic men and, and less empathetic women, but typically women are more empathetic, men are more aggressive, uh, men are more assertive, and so the old school traditional sale might be more suited to a the average bloke versus this new uh, way of selling where you do have to listen, you do have to add value up front. You can't just get your pitch and just ram it down someone's throat like what you may right. be able to, uh, you mm-hmm. might have been able to do in the past. Um, maybe maybe there is opportunity for a, a balancing in the workplace for for men and women in these sales roles. But I've also got to juxtapose that with the, again, the data, the science that women typically don't go for these kind of roles. Now, um, we have to account for that. Yeah, that's it's just a fact. You know, you you look at nursing staff. There's no uh, sexism. There's no. There's nothing to do uh, from from where I'm going at with this. There's just far more women in nursing than there is um, males. Now, in uh, for example, in surgery, uh, doctors. There's far more males than there is women. But when you look at what my partner does, geriatrics, elderly medicine, there's far more women in uh, elderly medicine than there is uh, men, and so. There's there's all kind of balances, there's all kind of things going on here. I don't think the point I'm going heading towards here, subtly and gently, so that I don't rile anyone up too much, is I don't feel it needs to be fifty fifty. There's no reason why it has to be fifty fifty. Um, as with anything in life, there's a massive gray area in between. And um, and just to conclude this article from Forbes, which is why I was hesitant as I went through and very careful. <laughs> I'll, I'll quote again. Seventy-seven percent of B two B sales, uh, female sales pros, told us that they met or exceeded their sales targets. So all of this data from this article, it all comes from female sales reps and sales leaders. And so, how scientific that can be, I don't know because everyone's biased. Everyone has an opinion. And if you are like the last company I worked for, it was a, there was like two women in the whole of the sales team, and. Uh, you know, rightly or wrongly, it was a bit of a boys' club. I didn't really fit in there either, to be fair, because they hired lots of uh, ex-professional athletes and people like that. And I'm this kind of science nerd, uh, like producing content, that side of things. So I always hit my target, always did well, but I wasn't quite in that club. And so I can only imagine what uh, some of the the female sales reps in the team probably felt like as well. Um, so yeah, so there, there's all kinds of biases about- and there's all things going on here, isn't there? What's interesting about you just highlighted, and I think this is really real, what you're highlighting, and that is women, and I'll be gentle about this, say it's a boys club, right? But you took it from a boy's perspective, so to speak, man's perspective, and said, hey, I'm not in that boys club because I'm not an athlete. I felt the same way. I had a underprivileged upbringing, so I didn't know anything about golfing or anything, so I was never invited to certain things, right, or certain events, and I was left out of that club. So to some extent, we're all kind of sometimes left out of that boys club, whatever that boys club is. And so I don't know where I'm going with that, but it's like we all have our issues because everybody thinks we're just, I think too often we're homogenized as that man group over there. But not every not everybody in the man group is in the man group. There's another level of man groupiness. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But now, anyway, you get the idea. You, you're right, and I get it. And hopefully, the audience will uh, have empathy of what we're saying here as well. And as I said, I there was quite a few clicks in the last organization that I was in. Again, I always hit target. Everyone was happy with me. Um, my sales manager and me fell out a bunch of times, but at the end of the year, it was always fine because the the targets would be crushed, right? Um, and that's all that should really matter in these organizations. But as I said, I didn't fit in with a bunch of these clicks. To be quite honest, a bunch of the athletes and, and they'd all hang out. They'd all be there, kind of like exchanging gym stories they're all a bit thick they're not the kind of people that uh, i necessarily wanted to spend time with out of work anyway so it's not like yeah. i felt um, that i was being uh, repressed or anything like that by not uh, spending so much time with these individuals uh, for me it was just a job and uh, and that was what it was so with that victor tell us about customer analytics you knew this was coming you knew this was coming and i'm glad this is what i live for all right title uh, this is a search business analytics over at techtarget.com uh, article. Customer analytics firms merge to take on Salesforce and Adobe. This is what I'm talking about. This is where the game gets interesting. 
because you know if you're at the top, you got it. You got to dethrone the king. In this case, Salesforce lets dethrone them. So Manthan Systems and Rich Relevance, vendor specializing in customer analytics, recently merged to bring together AI-fueled insights with expertise in global retail. That's their market. Two small customer analytic vendors merged on January 19th to, fir- to form Algonami, <laughs> an alternative. To, uh, that's the West I come up with that pronunciation. Algonami. If I got that wrong, Algonami, let me know. Algonami. I think it's algorithm and economy. I mean, uh, Algonami. I, I was waiting for you to say the word because I didn't know how to say it either. <laughs> Algonami, an alternative to CRM giant like Salesforce and Adobe, that offers a customer data platform built on augmented intelligence and machine learning to provide insights in real time. This is what I've been waiting for, because I love it. I, I love when you have the rise, you know, and eventually I don't want to see Salesforce or Adobe fall, but I just love to see them be, you know. I, the thing is, look, I love competition because it makes sure that the person in the lead doesn't get comfortable, you know, and somebody's nipping at their heels. Victor, this is gonna. This will make sense as I flesh it out. But are you a Star Trek person or a Star Wars person? In that Star Trek, and I don't know that much about Star Trek, but Star Trek, uh, I, I like Star Wars, but Star Trek just seems a little bit too nerdy from my perspective. Star Trek, they are. Is it the, the fighting for the Federation, the, the good guys, the going around trying to you know, crush the rebels and all that kind of thing? Whereas Star Wars. The the universe is against them. The, the they are the rebels. The you know the alliance or whatever the bad guys have all the power. Are you are you more interested in being the big cheese, just making sure everyone's happy, or are you the rebel who wants to kind of get back your freedoms and 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 slay the I don't know Darth Vader and all, and all the baddies in that perspective? I think I, I have to confess this. I think from a personal standpoint, I'm more Star Trekky from a personal standpoint, but. When I look at market market competition, I go into Star Wars mode. <laughs> so I, I guess I externalize Star, uh, uh, you know, uh, Star Wars, and I internalize Star Trek. Come on, let's all get along. Kumbaya, we're all in this universe together. Let's not fight. But then there's the competition. Then you go into Star Wars mode. There's the Death Star. Let's get the Death Star. Let's launch that thing. So. I don't know if that answers your question. It does answer my question, which is interesting. And it's one of the reasons perhaps why there's that dynamic between the two of us as we discuss things, because I am very much in the Star Trek camp. So I'll tell you off there, but someone slighted me a few years ago, the, the friendly election against salesman.org, uh, the, the company, um, over just a, a simple um, miscommunication, a, just a, a just basically a piece of marketing copy that just happened to be the same as some of their marketing copy. And the, the they were just an arsehole over it. I have a picture of that fella on my desk in the office when I'm working on my, on my computer desk. And every time I feel like I'm slacking a little bit, I look at that oh, idiot oh, yeah. and I go, I'm going to crush you. So uh, they, it's a far bigger company than what I'm competing, uh, what we are, uh, as and we might never get to that kind of size. But that idiot drives me like nothing else. Oh. I don't want Kumbaya, Victor. I don't want none of that bullshit. I want to crush right. these individuals. So yeah, so it's interesting. Maybe I, maybe there I, is that dynamic between yeah, us. I pre- I, yeah, I prefer Kumbaya, but then there's the Death Star. And there's always <laughs> got to be, you know, it's very, um, it's very George Orwell. If you think about it, 1984, there was always a common enemy, right? And so sometimes you look for that common enemy, and it's not so much that it's an enemy. So let's be clear. It's In your case, well, it may be in your case, but in my case, it's somebody like, I want to be as close to that person as possible. I may not get there, but that, there's the goal. That to me is social proof. Let's go in that direction. So I didn't know about this about you, Will. Yeah, What's, I've got so this side that, to me. You, you got, you, yeah, wow, okay. The dark side of Will. And I, I guess she, in general, look, uh, across business and business landscape, it ten, nine times out of 10, it's better for, I think uh, Guy Vaynerchuk is a credit to this, maybe. Uh, he probably robbed it from someone else. Of It's better to build, um, he wants to build the biggest skyscraper as opposed to, having a building of a set height and knocking everyone else down. So I'm not saying that I would want to do what this idiot did and try and use legal action against me to hold me back. I want to accelerate and build a better product, a better business so that I surpass him. So I'm not saying that I want like, ill will against him, but that drives me to do better. Um, so maybe that's a better way of uh, of explaining it. I get you. I get you. I also know the, the dark side now. Have you ever listened to a guy? I, I'm trying to look him up. His name is David Pena. No. So he's a, like a billionaire and he's a speaker. I think it's no, it's, it's not David. It's something Pena. Oh, this Dan guy Pena. Is so, the, Dan Pena. Yeah, he lives in a un, castle. Uh, yeah, unfiltered, like 75 years old. 
yeah, if you want to get fired up, and you know, there's a guy who is definitely a Star Wars dude. Mm-hmm. He's all about the Death Star. You know what I mean? And being a rebel. I mean, he's just a leader of the rebellion. I don't, no, so no, I, I don't think he's the leader of the rebe- rebellion. I think he is Darth Vader. <laughs> I think he's he's happy to just crush people. You see what I'm saying? Like I, I'm I'm Luke Skywalker. I, nice I, I want to I want to go and save the universe and 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 slay my father for the the better good. Dan Pena is a, and he would not care about saying this. Um, and I've, I've gone back and forth. I nearly interviewed him a few years ago. I don't know what happened. It, we didn't get arranged for whatever reason. He wants to just slay people. He says, as long as it's legal, moral, and ethical, he'll do it. And then he kind of paraphrases that and saying that um, uh, legal, moral, moral, and ethical is a gray area. So he's, he's happy to do whatever it takes, basically. Um, as long as it's somewhat legal to get the job done, and clearly he lives in a he lives in a castle in Scotland. So who am I to criticize that? If that's the life you want to live, um, clearly he's successful in uh, in what he's done to, brutal. to get where he is. He's brutal. He's brutal. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is brutal. But I, I guess yeah, I guess now that I think about it, he he doesn't want to get along with everybody, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Dad, just know that we're both fans. Go yep. ahead. <laughs> I, I, I've read his book. Uh, I think it's your first 100 million. Um, so it's <clears> slightly outdated now, um, but it is it is motivating. It's own right. And it's, I feel like it's good. Tell me your thoughts on this, Victor. I feel it's good to get different views on different people. So you mentioned your upbringing. Uh, the, my upbringing is very like uh, kind of lower middle class. Uh, Dad was uh, kind of uh, middle management. Mum worked in a pharmacy in a hospital, she's a pharmacy technician. Didn't have loads of money, but always had a roof over his head. I, whatever toys I wanted for Christmas, typically always got them, got the latest games, computer games or whatever. Um, but we weren't driving around in Porsches or anything like that. So uh, I think it's interesting when I've just had a very normal life and just very somewhat average up until kind of um, taking things into my own hands. Uh, and very safe and secure and no issues along that front. I find it really interesting and it really um, opens my eyes. And in fact, I will just pull it up here. Have you read um, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl? No, I've never read it, but I've kind of heard about it, so so to speak, by a lot of people. Amazing book. I'll link this in the show notes to this episode over at thisweekinsales.com. He's a Holocaust survivor and he's a psychiatrist who the first part of the book is him documenting uh, what went on and the, the the moral struggles and the fact that they the people who survived typically still had a bit of a laugh in these in, incredibly difficult horrible like circumstances and the second half of the book is him uh, trying to suss out why people survived and why some people didn't survive, uh, both mentally, physically, and everything else as well. It's, it's an amazing book, really motivating. Um, but the point I was making was, I find it really interesting to read people like Dan Pena or watch his videos uh, to to learn about your background and, uh, and your history and where you've gone, where you've gone from to where you are now, um, because that really opens my eyes to if other people have done these different things. I feel like I can do incredible things as well, even though I've not got, I haven't had this big, uh, you know, leap of success. I've not had to break through these barriers, because um, I, I find a lot of the stories that we do hear about is someone going from nothing to something, and I've kind of gone from something to something. So th- these different uh, views. I think it's a little more. You're being a little humble there, but I think it's uh, something to more than something. So we'll leave it at that. How's that? But yeah, but as I, I, all all the point I was making was, I find it really fascinating to get different views on different life experiences from people. And I, I, that's kind of, uh, I'll link to this book in the show notes, but that was one book that really had an impact on me. So much so that it's literally on the on the desk behind me there. Um, now, I I'm, think- now I'm slightly worried about whatever books are on there as well that the audience can see, because I've not curated these. Uh, so it could be absolutely anything. It's just what I was reading a few weeks ago. I, I was going to say that there's, I think there's something to, when you have some type of rough beginning, I, I think there's an, a, uh, I don't know. I'm going to use my choose my words carefully. There's an aggressiveness, an anger, a revenge aspect yep. that's in your DNA that makes you want to win. So when I see somebody with that, I'm going to kill you type of thing, you know, that, you know, and just like that, I go, dude, what happened to you? You know what I mean? In my head, I go, what happened to you? And so I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think to some extent it's a good thing because it drives you, but left unchecked, it's never a great thing. Sure. And I guess there's some of this is survivor bias as well of the people that you're chatting to who have used that energy to go somewhere good with it. Uh, you know, they've leveraged it to to better themselves. They're the people that we talk about and that we interview and that we see on stage. Uh, people who have let that 
you know, that those typical terrible circumstances, just eat them alive and, you know, whether it's drugs or whatever it is that they end up kind of going down a spiral. Obviously, we don't see those people, do we? So um, I guess that kind of uh, leads into it a little bit as well. Yeah, I think that's unfortunate. If you can channel it, you'll be great. If you can't, it's not going to be great. Perfect. Right, well, we got totally off topic there. So let's bring it back onto topic. Can AI, Victor, write our sales and marketing copy? So no, I... <laughs> no, 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 I'm going first. <laughs> Go ahead. Will. So this is, um, I thought we'd do a bit of an experiment here. So I'm going to I'm going to sign up to this software today. Um, I'm going to run some of our copy through it. Uh, it is conversion.ai. And they say they will use AI to write proven high converting copy for increased conversions and higher ROI. They will instantly generate high quality copy for ads, emails, websites, listings, blogs, and more. And the process is you choose a skill. So the software is trained by real copywriters and conversion experts um, with rules that they model and, and mimic. You then input your product data. So you, whether it's um, uh, the, the, the about a specific product or service, and you can add uh, other elements to it as well that kind of refines what the copy comes out. And then you generate the generate the AI content. Because I feel like we've been bashing a few companies here recently, Victor. Mm. So I'm going to give these guys a chance, conversion.ai. And next week, if I remember, I'll have to put it in the show notes uh, when we wrap up today so I don't forget, I will report back on how effective this is because this could change everything. This could, if you can effectively write AI-led and customized emails, immediately we don't need so much an outbound sales team anymore who are just spamming the marketplace anyway with non-customized emails. This could literally wipe out a whole bunch of, or it could reduce the the need so much for SDRs and the SDR role could be wrapped up into an, uh, perhaps a, a more closing role, business development role, I'm, I'm assuming, uh, when we take away some of the more laborious elements of SDRs. What do you think about this? Am I am I kind of putting too much on this AI or is it possible for it to, to have some success here? So let me back up. Let me back up. I apologize for the outburst. No. <laughs> Here's why. But here's where it came from. So in my book, Sales Ex Machina, where I talk about AI, I actually highlighted an AI program. And you and then it said, here's per- one written by a person. Here's one written by the AI. Same topic, baseball. And you couldn't really tell the difference, right? I'm like, great. So I buy this, right? And mentally, I go, I think this is possible. But I've been noticing that I'm starting to read articles now. And this is going to be a couple of problems. This is where the future, I think, is going and where the problem exists is that I go, this article just seems fragmented. The tenses or the way it's, it's stated, it just doesn't sound right. First person, second person, it just, and I go, a machine wrote this. So I don't think the machines are there yet. Now, I don't know about conversion.ai, so we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe this is the company. But so far, I've been able to smell slash detect a lot of these. And, I, and I, my, my fear is that over time, they're gonna get better, Well, We know this will happen. They'll get better over time. But for now, I think a lot of stuff that's online now is being generated by AI, and you can just tell it's junk. The the punctuation's off, the the grammar's off. Uh, there's uh, still some typos. I mean, if you can't get the typos with AI, I mean, come on. So, but hopefully, maybe, just maybe, conversion.ai is the real deal. What's interesting about the typos is we might get to a point where a typo is a sign of a real person, because that should that, that, that should be easily solved, right? I am a terrible a, speller. You are such a salesman. Did you see what he just did? People, did you see what he just did? He took my objection and just flipped it. He goes, maybe that is a positive, Victor. I love that. That was really good, Will. That was really good. I am genuinely a terrible salesperson. I'm not a terrible salesperson. I'm a terrible speller. Maybe that was a Freudian slip right there. Maybe everything is just a sham. It's just a complete facade. Um, I'm a terrible speller and I've never managed to solve it. I bought a book recently called, it's like, learn to spell as an adult or something like that. Um, but then I didn't get anywhere, anywhere through the work because it was tons of work of doing basically what you had to do as a child to learn to spell. It seems like there's not a better way to go about it, which is unfortunate. Um, but yeah, it could be that grammatical errors, spelling mistakes, or even talking in a bit more slang. I know you kind of have difficulty sometimes with my Queen's English and the words that I use and you, you like to call it out on the show. But it could be at some point that... That is that is what personalization is, and that could be a, a layer of um, a value that you can potentially add to your buyers by speaking to them conversationally, as opposed to what a robot speaks to or spams them at. You know, I got this image in my head. It, this 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 is a graphic years ago, 
and it was about the first the first I guess frame is where the kid brings a, a tape recorder to the class, right? The next one is he's not there; it's just a tape recorder, right? Then the next slide is everybody in the room just has their tape recorder on their desk, and then the final scene, the teacher puts a tape recorder. And so there's nobody in the room. So it's tape recorder talking to tape recorder, so to speak. And, and I find it interesting because isn't that is kind of what's happening now, right? These articles are being written by machines, but we don't really, you know, I mean, we read our posts, but do we really read a lot of posts? And we're posting a lot of stuff, but we don't really read a lot of posts. So it's like we're transmitting, but so now the machine's going to begin transmitting. Is anybody listening, Will? So I think this is a really, uh, it's a fair point, And I think this is really exciting for people who are genuinely creating content like what we're doing here. So AI couldn't have the conversation that we're having. It doesn't have our background, our experiences. It doesn't have our, our insights, whether the insights are rubbish or fantastic. It, it doesn't have them. Now it has access to everything and eventually via the internet, it'll be able to drag out and build personas. And so it might be able to simulate some of this. But that right now is what makes this interesting. And I know myself, I don't read like crappy news articles anymore. I only really consume news from, I like Sky News here in the UK, uh, the New York Times. Maybe that's it. I don't know. Uh, that might They might be the only places I consume news. Uh, Sky News in the UK for quick bite-sized stuff. And some of that could be automated. Um, but then I really do enjoy, so I tend to avoid most news in general, but I do enjoy learning about things via uh, I guess, journalists who are professionals in what they do via content at like the New York Times. And I think that is a massive separation point in that there's going to become a point where you're only, you're going to choose content as opposed to you're going to consume what's thrown at you. And I think that's just happening more and more, right? You're going to go to somewhere that curates good content as opposed to whoever has the fastest news and, and the, the, the most ridiculous headlines. And we've seen this over the years with the likes of BuzzFeed. They've gone from just creating listicle content to now they do pretty decent on occasion investigative journalism. Um, massive, deep-ended posts, um, long uh, kind of long-form content. And so clearly that shift is coming and I'm happy to pay a bit of money. I'm happy to subscribe to uh, news sources, content sources that aren't just crap. And I'm sure the marketplace is going to shift towards that way as well. It's interesting. As I'm listening to you, you're right. Curation is the key. And if you think about, if we use search engines, small tangent coming, I'll come back quickly, is if you think about the search engines pre-Google, we had all these different search engines and the, the, the results were always shite, as you would say, <laughs> right? And, and so all of a sudden, you know, um, what does Google come up with? Was it page page rank? Yep. Was there algorithm? They came up with page rank and then they, they started curating and everybody gravitated toward Google. So maybe what's going to happen, the next level is so much content out there that the new curation websites or engines are going to be the thing in the future. For sure. And Google are doing that very precisely. They will track yeah. when you click a link, how long you're on that link for. They also, this is why Google and privacy and data is a bit weird. They also track multiple clicks through. So you're not really clicking onto a website, you're clicking via a Google kind of window. They then track how long you spend on the site, what you do on the site. If you buy something on that website, for example, that will then start to rank higher than a website that you click on or thousands of people click on and nobody makes a purchase because Google's saying, these are signals to Google that, well, this website, no one's buying from it. It's probably uh, crappy, bullshitty. People are buying from this website. So we should probably promote that one a little bit more. Now it all gets messy when you involve Google ads and, and people black hatting um, and, and messing around with search engine optimization. It all gets a little bit of a gray area there, but Google are proactively trying to do that. I've got a question for you before we move on to the next topic, Victor. Hmm. What was your pre-Google search engine of choice? Uh, I, I think it was Internet Explorer. I.e., remember the Internet Explorer? Yeah, but that, that was a browser, not a, uh, a, browser. a search engine. Well, okay. Then I would have to go, AOL wasn't it. So it had to be Yahoo, I think. Sure. I, was always using, I, can't, I can't go further back than that. So Yahoo probably? I used to always use Ask Jeeves. Just Ask because Jeeves. I was going to the... say that. Yeah. It was right there. I was going to say it. I was, it was right there. I was going to say it. Ask Jeeves. You're right. Just like the, the pale yellow background and the butler on the front of it. That was that was yeah. all it took to make me choose that over like Alta Vista. Um, Yahoo was slightly different because of directory. Uh, so you had to apply Alta to be Vista, in yeah. it as opposed to they were using spiders right. to, to grab uh, content and, and links Correct. from the internet. Uh, but yeah, I used to always use Ask Jeeves. That was my go-to. I love it. Richie Rich reference right there. <laughs> all right. So on selling. 
Data story selling. I, this, I'm excited about this. I don't know if you've seen, you know, uh, stuff that's happening with business intelligence platform, but this is getting exciting to me. Data storytelling, a key part of Yellowfin Analytics platform. Yellowfin was one of the first business intelligence vendors to add data storytelling capabilities to its platform. Now Yellowfin is attempting to extend the reach of the analytics to more users with its narrative. Now, data storytelling is automatically generated interpretation of data put in a narrative form rather than a straight numbers analysis. So it's easier to digest. Given the easy-to-understand format, some tech observers think that technology has the potential to revolutionize, revolutionize analytics, extending its reach within an organization from an estimated 20 to 40% of employees to nearly all of them. And I don't know if you've seen some of these demos. Now, this came from Search Business Analytics over at uh, Target, techtarget.com. What they do will... By the way, have you seen some of this data storytelling? Only, only from like uh, videos of uh, promoting a product, as opposed to I've not used the product themselves. So I was I was watching a uh, the nerd I am like you. I was watching this Microsoft Dynamics uh, a demonstration of this this data storytelling. I was like, data storytelling. What does that really mean? And they can highlight like literally just like highlight a data point on a graph, and the thing will automatically generate the story behind why that dip in sales actually occurred. Then it allows you to create a story. So imagine you're showing this screen with all these data points. It's got five or six different graphs. And you can highlight what you want to talk about. And it'll automatically start filling it off to the right, telling you the story. And then you could rearrange the story in the way you want to tell the story. But here's what's even interesting. When you're on a specific story, it'll blur all the other data out. So you just focus on that story. And I'm like, oh, this is like an engineer's <laughs> dream. I censored myself there, by the way. This is like an engineer's dream. You know, it's like, oh, I can use data to really tell a story. This, to me, is exciting technology. How well does it work, though? And now, considering you were massively down on using AI to generate copy, but this seems even more complicated because you're now using storytelling, which is subjective, and you know there may be some science behind what works with stories. Uh, but you seem to be up on this. So how well does it work? It seems it seems it must be an easier job to write copy automatically for a product versus get all the data and then structure it in a story that's relevant and interesting and engaging. You know, there's there's a phrase on, from my homeland of Puerto Rico that highlights people like you at moments like this. It's called a tumba nota. A tumba nota is like think of a high note. You knocked it down. <laughs> you are a tumba nota. I was at a high point, high note, and you just knocked it down. I'm all excited about Yellowfin right here. You're like, yeah, but Victor, that's kind of what you're. You're a tumba nota today. So anyway, a little Spanish for our folks. So you're right though. It's it's almost like the giggle effect, right? Garbage in, garbage out. So the data has to be good. That's actually going in. So they didn't really get into well, they didn't get into it at all. How the data got put in there and what type of annotations were actually made. Because in some cases, when they highlighted the data will, they would tell you, for example, there was an interruption in the supply chain that impacted this, that, that. So if that data wasn't put in somehow, then it doesn't matter. So you're absolutely right. So if the data isn't there, the machine's not going to invent it. Sure. If it is, that, that would be next level AI. Yeah, I guess less inventing. It'd be interesting if it could just hop on the internet and I, I'm sure this is going to be a far-fetched example, but I'm mm. sure some things like this do exist, especially in like the financial markets. Perhaps it sees the gap. It doesn't know what the gap is. It hops on the internet. It's looking at what happens on that date, what happens in the uh, production in general, what happened in the, the news on that date. Was there a crash with this? Was this product uh, or service or was there a flood or what was the weather like? Um, I'm sure there are, and it's it'll be very closed sourced in-house um, uh, systems to do this again in the financial markets if you could predict what's going to happen based on previous history uh, but by any tools like this you've got a, a massive advantage in the marketplace uh, but it'd be interesting if eventually it could do things like that and mm -hmm. complete a story that you can't complete yourself because right now all it's doing is saving you time but if it can add extra insights on top of that by being connected to the internet that's when this becomes game changing for me I agree. And it is it is a matter of buying or getting access to different data sources, right? The more data sources, the more it can actually pull in. I, I see this as also a great tool for people who are looking for more investments, right? Maybe, got, you know, second round of investment, third round of investment, because you'll be able to explain some of the data to your investors. So I think that's interesting. Yep. 
Hey, Will, question for you. Have you ever heard this term, multi-threading? Um, should I tell you the context I have heard it from? Yes, sir. So within uh, CPUs, computer uh, processors, they talk about multi-threading all the time. Um, you have a, a memory, a, 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 it'd be like an L1, L2 cache that holds data, then it goes into multiple threads and it can be simultaneously processed and it spits out data at the other end. Some uh, processing is is great for it. Uh, some processing like video rendering is terrible for it because you've got to do one frame at a time in a video render so you can't parallel process or multi-process them. But I don't know about it in the context of sales, Victor. So enlighten yeah. me in the audience. I, you know, I knew the tech one. I also knew the uh, when you have multi-threads within a chat room. Sure. You know, that was the other threading I got. Well, I was listening to an interview. And it was a random interview I was watching. And, and the, the young guy says, hey, what I use is a multi-threading approach. I go, multi-threading? What the heck is that? So I had to look it up. Multi-threaded sales are deals where your sales team has connected with multiple decision makers on the purchasing side. And I'm like, okay, so it's really the same thing we've always known. <laughs> that you don't, you, don't, you, you don't want to bank on one person. You really want to connect with a lot of different people within an organization. And then as opposed to a single-threaded sales relationship, which only lasts as long as your champion remains at the company. In his latest research, management strategist Dr. John Sullivan reveals that 70% of people quit their jobs within two years. It, you know, it, that, right number, that number right there is kind of shocking. I mean, yep. millennials, what are you doing to the market right now? <laughs> And then these two data points, since 32% of employers now expect job jumping, sales reps and teams should follow suit and plan according, preparing for the effects of turnover at a client company. Last bullet point, and I'll try to tie this all together. In the 2018 Bridge Report, it shows that the average tenure for sales rep is 1.5 years. That number was a little bit shocking, but says what made it worse was not bad until you consider it takes an average of three to five months to ramp up the productivity. Now, there's two ways of looking at this. And I thought this multi-threading thing, I mean, obviously multi-threading means is you don't want to bank on the champion. You want to have multiple points, multiple hooks inside a company. But the point is more relevant today because not only are you sales reps jumping ship from their own company, I guess employees within the company you're targeting are also jumping ship. So this is like a, you know, it's really dynamic. And I just thought it was an interesting phrase that we'd bring to the forefront here on This Week in Sales. I've got two thoughts on this. One, and I'll, I'll I'll give you to them both in case there's one that's more interesting to chat about than the other. Yeah. One, this tells me that building your personal brand is more important than ever before. Because if I work with Sally at company A, we do a deal, and she loves working with me personally, it doesn't matter about the product service. I've added so much value with her, uh, you know, via the cliches of consulting and, and all this good stuff that we talk about um, with the, the complex B2B sale all the time. And then she moves to company B, she might buy from me again. And then if I move, which is what I did, move from one medical device company to their biggest competitor, I took a load of business over with me as well. So I get to, I, I was basically headhunted from one organization to another because, and it got a massive bonus, got a uh, kind of, got a, the sales team didn't realize it's the time, my, my colleagues, but I got a kind of some, what you call it, what's the opposite of golden handcuffs? I got like a, uh, like a, a bonus for coming Lead. to the company kind of thing. No, yeah. Lead <laughs> no I, I, as in, I wasn't, um, golden handcuffs is when you've been with so, an organization so long that it doesn't make sense to leave, right? Right, right. I had the opposite of that at the beginning of, of the, uh, of the role. Um, so your personal brand is that strong. If you can generate leads based on the fact that your LinkedIn profile ranks number one when an organization searches for medical device salesperson, end, end, endoscopic camera salesperson, whatever it is, um, you've just got massive control over your, uh, you're almost unsackable. So I think that's really empowering for salespeople um, as to uh, rather than disempowering for them. I think if we can, if people are chopping and changing jobs all the time, I think that's a it's a good place for salespeople to be selling into as opposed to it's been becoming more difficult for them. So that's point one, number one. Point number two, I thought you were going to go down the route of having two salespeople sell into the same account. So multi-threading from the perspective of we've got Sally and Barry both selling into this enterprise account. Some customers or some individuals in the account are going to have more of an affinity for Barry. Some are going to have more of an affinity to Sally. Perhaps Sally is young and Barry is more tenured and and, and, and perhaps older or has more experience. Uh, one is perhaps uh, more of a product specialist and the other one is more of a, of a deal maker. I thought that would be the, the route that they were going to talk about in this article of multi-threading with uh, kind of 
doubling down on, on large enterprise accounts as opposed to it talked about basically the, op- uh, the obvious isn't it of get in front of more people and you more like to close deals I think you came up with a new phrase, Will. Congratulations. I think we're going to call it dual multi-threading. <laughs> that's when two people work through an organization, connect with different points. So that's it. This Week in Sales has just invented a new phrase, dual multi-threading. We'll take credit for that. Will. Yeah, because that is something <laughs> that that might separate an organization in the marketplace, right? Because nobody does that. Very well. You, yeah. Maybe the siloed sales teams with... Um, so my last sales job, we had a trainee with us and then he had a product specialist who kind of went across multiple silos and then I had a logistics guy. Um, <laughs> I've not thought about, I won't name him because he might listen to this, but our logistics guy, he was an absolute legend. I've forgotten about him until just that moment in time. Um, a slightly older guy running around, delivering these camera systems to theaters and just doing everything, dressed far better than what I did. Everyone thought he was the salesperson, not me. Uh, I'd rock in looking like a scruff after the fact. And everyone would be like, why, why are you here? Anyway, uh, we'll, we'll cover that another time. But it would be interesting to see. That'd be, I feel like that'd be an interesting experiment if you are selling into the enterprise of having two sales professionals go in there as opposed to just the one. I, I think it happens today with like collaborative selling. So you may see that in certain organizations, but I don't know if it's a standard though. Sure. Cool. All right then. Well, let's move on to Hyundai, who is tried to automate the, quote, nagging car salesman. Now, Hyundai have named the cute little robot Dali, which is clearly a play on, on Wally, right? And um, they are using a, because of social distancing, because of the fact that everyone Googles cars, they know exactly what they want to buy when they come into a showroom. They are experimenting with this cute little robot that I think in reality basically gives you information. It's basically an iPad shaped like a robot. It really, right. but they are experimenting with it and trying to use it as a, a product differentiator of, hey, come to our showroom. There are people there that you can engage with, but there's also, if you don't want to speak to people, if you feel like you're going to be sold to and you don't want that experience, you can engage with Dali instead. Is this, oh, and, and I'll double down on this as well. Uh, they're a South Korean car maker. Um, uh, South Koreans clearly love their technology. And so I think it's more uh, based in that market as opposed to the US a European market. Um, but is there something to this, Victor? Are we going to see more automated cars, salespeople, robots in the future? Well, it's interesting because you know it would be totally offensive if you walk into the dealership and you're like, dude, I don't want to talk to you. I'm going to talk to the inanimate object over here. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's already offensive, right? Yeah. I'll, talk to the, I'll talk to the inanimate object. But on the subject of where we're at today in our culture uh, with, with social distancing, wouldn't it make sense? Wouldn't it just make sense? It, it's almost like... Since we can't get to virtual reality, like bring the experience to us yet fully, maybe that's the next step in the evolution of the actual virtual experience. Go there, talk to a robot, and it may be just fun to talk to the robot. For sure. Again, I think this, it could be a gimmick. Uh, so this this is from jalopnick.com, um, and I'm going to quote from them now. In the event that a customer enters the showroom without wearing a mask, the Android, so they're not even calling it a robot, they're calling it an Android. It doesn't, it doesn't look very human-like, um, just to clarify that, but call it Android. The Android recognizes it and advises the customer to wear one, to put a mask on, basically. So there's multiple elements to this. It's basically taking over the job of, perhaps more of a receptionist than a, a salesperson at this point. But I think I would go to a car showroom to see this in action, even if I wasn't going to buy a car. This might be a way to generate foot traffic and a marketing gimmick as opposed to anything else. I agree with that, actually. It's, it is a marketing gimmick. You almost want to experience it, like the vending machine Carvana. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to put the big coin in just your car <laughs> you know, brought up. It's just like, because uh, we, look, We've gotten to a point, we've talked about this, These a car, I don't want to say a car is a car is a car, but, you know, the cars are all, it's just a matter of taste now and choice. So if that's the case, then we can probably do this with a robot. Anyway, here's another blow to co-working spaces. Well, can co-working spaces survive the pandemic? Well, the New York-based co-working provider, Notel, which I'd never heard of, which had become a fierce competitor to WeWork, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in the United States earlier this week, opting to be taken over by Newmark Group. That comes as a steep drop in uh, office demand is hurting the number of short-term rental businesses. I mean, I see this everywhere. And by the way, this article came off of LinkedIn News. I see this everywhere. Well, I don't know if you see it over there in the UK, but you can drive around here and there's retail lease spaces everywhere. 
you know, are signs everywhere. And, you know, you can get, you know, space very cheaply here today. So I think companies are hurting. Business parks are hurting. Because why would I want to go to a business park, be surrounded with people who are coughing and sneezing on me and have to then queue up to buy stuff when I can just get it from Amazon? Correct. Am I, Correct. am I missing something here? Or has Amazon just ruined retail? Because there's not many, maybe if I'm buying a nice watch or something, like when I bought this watch I've got now, uh, I wanted to go and see it. I wanted that experience of getting a glass of champagne and sitting down and being pampered and stuff like that. But that's the the value add that the, because obviously it's more to buy from a shop than it is to buy one um, even gray market or get it imported or something like that. So that's the, I'm happy to pay that a little bit more for that experience. But if I'm going buying some boxer shorts and a t-shirt, why did I, maybe I want to try the t-shirt on. So I've, I've undermined myself there. But most things, I don't want to go and queue up and, and waste time. I, I, need, I need stuff now. I'm almost, I'm almost addicted to that Amazon same day delivery. I order it in the morning and it arrives in the evening. I'm almost addicted to mm. that at this point. I think they've, I, I think they've made us addict. That's why Jay Be- Jeff Bezos is leaving Amazon. He says, well, I've addicted the world. Time to move on. Uh, the retail be one side. The, also the, the office space leasing which is what this this article is really about. It's this office space leasing is now going down because we used to go into these common work areas to work with other people. Now we don't even want to do that. And so all these companies are finding themselves with all this office space. And again, the signs in our neighborhood are just all over the place. It's interesting. So uh, we'll touch on it in perhaps in a few weeks' time. So we have almost secured some um, uh, new... I've got to be careful what I say because the we need to finalize contracts and uh, there's a few things that need to be clarified as to whether it is commercial space, whether it's residential space and things like this. Um, but I looked at getting some office space and the prices of stuff hasn't come down. The the, the uh, Here local in Leeds and Yorkshire in the beautiful UK, everyone's in denial. There's so much open office <laughs> space and the prices are up on this time last year. So I don't know what they're expecting. And the reason I bring this up is there might be data, there might be something going on in the background where these big office complexes know that there's going to be a rebound. There may be legislation coming. There may be working from, because I don't think there is any uh, in the UK work from home legislation of what you, there's health and safety. There's, uh, you know, even the HR side of things of, who provides the screen? If you're working on a laptop, you're going to be hunched over. You can't you can't necessarily do that in an office environment because then you sue them for your your bad neck and back and wrists later on in life. <laughs> so there's all kinds of weird things going on. So maybe these office uh, complexes, these office uh, rental providers, maybe they know something that we don't, Victor. I don't know. I I personally don't. <laughs> you don't sound I, sold I don't on that at do. all. No, no, because I I think a lot of companies are realizing. I, I guess I've had in the last week or so too many conversations with company leaders who've told me we're closing as many deals. And even if we're below close rates, the amount of costs we're saving of yeah. people not traveling and working from yeah. home offsets that differential. Our profit margins are up. So I think they're in denial. Time to make some adjustments. Time to come up with creative ways to resell that space. Listen, people. And what do we do, Victor? I know that I'm throwing this at you and it's not necessarily your expertise, but how do we fill a big office complex? We, perhaps we can come up with interesting ways to fill um, retail complexes. We need to add experiences. We need to, when you go and buy your box of shorts, you get to have a game of paintball on the way in or something. But how do we, how do we repurpose just a big concrete block building of, of offices? I saw this thing downtown here where I live in Atlanta. Uh, I live in a uh, suburb called Alpharetta. They have these plastic domes they they put over the tables outside have you seen these things no it's a plastic dome it, it looks like pvc piping with some upholstery some clear upholstery around it right and so it's it's a small table for about four people and they put a plastic dome over it just so people feel that security it by the way it's also grateful when it gets a little chilly maybe some of these buildings will have to repurpose how people access them that would be my first thing i would create a giant habit trail like for hamsters, and then maybe these rooms are individually housed and you can find a way to get to your room, your office, without having to make contact with somebody else. I don't know how you would do that. I'm just throwing that out as an idea. You, you can pop into your cube without you know, say, having to say hi to anybody. 
So I'm this is a, a longer conversation, Victor, perhaps a politically charged one as well. But do you feel like culturally we're going to go back to normal after all this? And for context in the UK, we've now vaccinated 10 million individuals. I think we've vaccinated, I might, I might be slightly off on this, but it's about right. We've vaccinated 90% of over 75s in the UK now. So we're getting to the point where hospital admissions are dropping, uh, people dying each day are dropping because the most vulnerable people who are likely to be admitted to hospital and who are likely to unfortunately die from, from COVID or complications via COVID have been uh, vaccinated. So the data is now showing that everything is now dropping into um, uh, being passed from one person to another. The uh, We call it the R number in the UK, the number of people that you would pass it on to is dropping as well. So the virus is going to be under control at some point in time. Who knows when? It will be under control as long as everyone uh, gets on board with, va- uh, the, uh, with the vaccines and all that good stuff. But do you think culturally this is going to scar people, like mentally scar people that? They don't want to shake hands. They don't want to be in an office environment and they don't want to be surrounded by other people because they've had, you know, and it depends on, you know, your circumstances, who you are, mental health, all this kind of stuff. But there would be a level of, uh, I can't think the right word to describe it. This is not the right way to describe it, but people have almost had like post-traumatic stress syndrome um, via being shocked into this. And I'm not, clearly I'm not saying people who've been in the, the military and, and been at war and stuff. I'm not I'm not going to try and compare the two, but I don't know the right way to, to describe it. But people are mentally scarred by some of this. So do you think culturally we're going to go back to normal? Or Victor, do you think that people are just going to refuse to go back into an office environment? Well, first, I don't think the, the phrase post-traumatic stress disorder is just for military purposes. I mean, there's people who go through traumatic experiences who have post-traumatic stress. So I think that is the appropriate phrase. So there's going to be a segment who are going to suffer from that. I'm not going back. But then you're going to have a lot of business leaders who are going to see from what we just talked about, I don't want to send them back. So we're not doing that either. And so even as we're moving through the vaccination process, again, I think, one, we're not going back. We're just not to 100% of what we used to do. And so I think it's moving in the right direction. I don't know what the vaccination rate here is, but I just hear too many people talking about, you know, I hear people reminiscing about, can't wait to go back, can't wait to get together with people. And that's great. But I hear more people saying, I kind of like this. <laughs> so I think, I think we're going to, we're going to, it's going to be different. Well, what it will look like, I have no idea, but I kind of like where we're, the direction we're going in. I mean, from an environmental standpoint, we're driving less. We're probably yeah. damaging the, the, mm-hmm. the ecosystem less. So I think that's a big plus. Uh, people are spending probably more time with their kids. Now, the downside is, is that if you totally lock down like California here has a tendency to do, like, all right, you can't go anywhere. You know, then you have a lot of issues that we're going to find out about later down the road when we look back, you know, whether it's uh, drug, alcoholism, suicides, depressions. I mean, those numbers are kind of going through the roof in some areas. So it's a mixed bag of stuff. Sure. Uh, I think that's a fair point to wrap up that with, that it is a mixed bag. In the UK, we're still in lockdown right now. And there's really good, it's terrible data, but it's it's well studied of um, suicide attempts and domestic abuse and things like that have, have massively gone up. Now, you know, obviously this is all uh, objective as well of, and it's a terrible thing to, I don't really want to get into it, I guess. I'll, I'll, I'll cut myself back of comparing one thing with another thing. And, and if it's all bad, it's all just a shit storm, right? But I'm more optimistic than you. I think a lot of businesses will go back. I think there's going to be a uh, a lull. And I think, I think people are going to go, hey, we've not actually done any product development in two years now because no one's together and it zooms rubbish for this because we need to engage. We need to see you. I need to, I need to have a whiteboard. We need to collaborate on this whiteboard and we can do it on zoom, but it's just totally unintuitive. So I think there's going to be a bit more of a bounce back. I'm, I'm making that prediction now. We'll see uh, next year on uh, kind of uh, this this week in sales in uh, 2022, who is correct. But I think there's going to be a bit more of a bounce back than what you're anticipating, Victor. You could be right. And by the way, there is value in what you said, that there are companies who need to be in the same room together, engineering departments, to really collaborate and get things done. Uh, But I think a lot of companies are going to find ways to kind of like not having to get together. So I'll leave it on that. We'll we'll find out what happens in the future. (laughs) And we'll clip this out so one of us will look like an idiot and the other one will look like a hero. (laughs) Um, And the the way we've done it, one of us is going to win. So we're going to, the show is going to win regardless. I love it. Right. Final point here. And this is from Nick. He sent this over on LinkedIn. Uh, Last week, we covered um, money, happiness, data and studies. And he sent me an updated study. Um, Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. I noticed how you like purposely 
left his last name out. Is that, do you not want to take a shot at how that name sounds? Um, I tend to do that because Nick didn't give me his permission to shout him out on the show. Now, okay. at the end of his post, he says, hey, I find your podcast super helpful. I've been working medical devices for just under two years, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and This Week in Sales is definitely my favorite show. So he's clearly a fan. Um, he will know as he listens to this. But sometimes we have audience questions on uh, kind of this show and other shows, Victor, where perhaps they're slagging someone off. Perhaps they're not happy and I don't want to call them out <laughs> in front of tens of thousands of people unless I've explicitly uh, kind of uh, asked them. Well played, well played. Well. And I also don't want to try and pronounce his surname. So yeah, uh, the we, we talked about um, last week, the 70, 75,000 being the point where you get essentially diminishing returns on extra income on top of that uh, with regards to your happiness. So 75, $70,000 in previous, I guess, years and decades has been enough to, on the Maslow hierarchy of needs, get most of those met so you can live a decent life. Now, uh, in recent studies, it's up to about $90,000 or I guess in today's money by the time we add inflation and things to that as well. So thank you, Nick, for dropping us the link to that study. I appreciate that, mate. And if you listening to this right now have any uh, kind of rebuttals to anything that we're saying, if you think we've got anything right, wrong, anything you want to add, please do go to This Week in Sales dot com and add your uh, there's a form on there drop us a message or you can message us directly as well victor anything else we need to dive into before we wrap up mate i think it's time to wrap up well let's do it perfect well that was victor antonio sales legend my name is will baron founder over at salesman.org and with that we'll speak with you again on next week's this week in sales